It's Pete Nordstrom on his magic carpet, baby. It's time to fly with the chickens in the barnyard. Good golly, Miss Molly. Now here's Pete. everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom, and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm super excited to be talking with longtime NBA announcer and former voice of the Seattle Supersonics, Kevin Calabro. Today, it's a real pleasure for me and quite a thrill to have Kevin Calabro on the podcast. Now, some of you that listen to this often and are expecting people from the fashion world or the retail world, you might say, who's Kevin Calabro? But what you (laughs) probably know about this podcast is I tend to follow the whim of stuff I'm interested in. And one of the things I'm really interested in I like is basketball. And Kevin Calabro, in my book is the number one play-by-play announcer in professional basketball. And I think I'm not the only person that feels that he's he's a well-recognized and regarded guy. And so, Kevin, thanks so much for being on the show. Pete, thanks for having me, and I, I appreciate the compliment. So we know each other uh, because, I mean, I was a fan before anything else, but people may not know this about me, but I was a a part owner of the Seattle Supersonics from 2001 to 2006. And as such, I got access to kind of everything that was going on and and got a chance to meet Kevin and and know him a little bit. And um, it's really through that filter that I'm probably going to act a little bit nostalgic about stuff here. And I don't I don't mean to have it all be a throwback thing because Kevin's still a current guy. He's a play by play announcer for the Portland Trailblazers. But, you know, maybe I think just to start, Kevin, if you can talk about your sonic time and we'll go back and get a little bit more of your background. But at least for my way of thinking, that had to be a a really, even to this day, an important part of your career, given all the length you were here and the success the team had? Oh, there's no doubt. Uh, I got to Seattle in 1987, and I was hired because of a prior relationship with Bob Whitson, who was then the general manager of the Seattle Supersonics. I got to know Bob when I graduated from Butler University in Indianapolis in 1978, And of course, like everybody in college, I did just about every job you can possibly do in media at that time. And after four years of going to school at Butler with a great program. So did you literally study broadcasting in college? It is possible to literally (laughs) study broadcast and get a four-year degree from an accredited university. It's in good standing. But, you know, I I did a lot of high school radio at Ben Davis High School in Indianapolis, Indiana, which is where I'm from on the west side. And I got I really got hooked into radio because my dad was a a radio man in uh, World War II in the Pacific on an LST landing ship transport. 
he would tell me to a degree stories about his time in the service, but mostly it was about those communications between ships and land and passing those on and deciphering the code and passing it on to the captain of the ship. That really fascinated me, that that ability to communicate, the immediacy of the communication and so forth, and the importance of it. So I, I just got hooked on, on that idea of radio. And of course, growing up in the Midwest, you hear a lot of great baseball announcers. There was Jack Buck at KMOX. Uh, there was Harry Carey up at WGN in Chicago. Jack Brickhouse in Chicago with the Chicago Cubs. I mean, the list went on and on of all these great announcers you could hear at night on your AM radio. I would listen to these baseball announcers and I just thought, man, this would be a great way to make a living. But, you know, it's going to be near impossible. So I, I set my sights on being a disc jockey. I thought that would be ah. fun because I played a lot of records and so forth. So anyway, high school radio was where I, I got my start uh, doing high school basketball games. We did football games. We had great instructors that just insisted we do everything. Uh, insisted that we wrote, produced, engineered, and of course did our, our on-air stuff as well. Uh, it was a great education. So when I got to college, I had a pretty well-rounded experience. But that's, that's how I got through Butler, was working weekends and doing some other stuff all in media until finally I get to a point where I'm doing the public address and pre and post game show on radio for the Indiana Pacers. And it was a very successful radio station. It was number one at that time in the market, WIBC. Uh, I ended up doing Purdue University basketball after a year of minor league hockey. So I did minor league hockey in Indianapolis for the old Central Hockey League checkers, which wow. consisted of a ragtag <laughs> band of ex-NHL guys and young upcoming stars. Now, this was this was a, a great step up for me because now I'm doing I'm getting actually getting paid to do play by play, and I'm doing hockey, a sport I was not. Pete, I was not well acquainted with hockey. <laughs> well, that was going to be my question. I mean, I got to imagine if you're calling something that's a first love for you and you have experience, you've played it. That's one thing. You have sure. an intuitive sense. How was it calling something like hockey if you never played it? Well, a action sport, just like basketball, nonstop and. In those days, the only stoppage was for a fight. <laughs> so there was always something going on, something you could describe, some something you could touch upon on radio. Look, I got extremely lucky to get the job. It was one of those deals, well, let's let the kid do it. He'll work for nothing. He's single and he can travel. Bingo. <laughs> so they gave me a shot. I was doing some high school basketball up to that point, was working my tail off, did overnights for that radio station, midnight to six as a disc jockey. Now they wanted a play-by-play guy. So I got this call and I just, they said, can you do hockey? I said, absolutely do hockey. I've played pond hockey. So, yeah, I mean, that eminently qualified me. You know, <laughs> sure. Be a hockey announcer. So I listened to a lot of tapes, uh, a lot of those, the big cassette tapes, boom. I had teams sending those to me. The club really did me a great service too. They sent me to Rye, New York, which was the training camp of the New York Islanders for a week with our head coach, Fred Creighton, who had coached the Boston uh, Bruins and the Atlanta Flames in the NHL. Uh, so a great depth of knowledge. As I recall, a very patient man. <laughs> You'd have to be patient. You've just taken on this 24-year-old kid who knows nothing about hockey, and you're taking him for a week to New York to ride New York. It was a crash course in hockey for a week. And I conscientiously, though, every game would listen back to the audio tape just to make sure, you know, drop this, add this, try to improve. 
And I ended up doing, with the playoff games that we did, I ended up doing close to 100 games that year by myself, no analyst, no oh, engineer. Man. We did our own engineering. That must have been exhausting by the end of the game. If you're talking for the whole time, constant action. Talking the whole time. 24 years old, though, remember, Pete, and just could go all day and burn all night. It was great training for anything that would follow after that. And what followed after that then was a, a year of doing Purdue basketball, which was fantastic. Now I'm doing Big Ten basketball. I'm 25 years old. See, but that's kind of an amazingly big job. I mean, Purdue basketball, that's a big job. Like, How did you get that job at 25 years old? Management just took a liking to me. And I'd worked for them to that point for three and a half years right out of college. And I'd do anything for these guys. I mean, I'd work holidays, weekends, double shifts, triple shifts. I just think they trusted me. Yeah. So I had earned my stripes doing the hockey. I had passed the grade. And now I'm doing college basketball. And it was spectacular. I loved it. However, my goal was to do NBA. And I knew Bob Witsit. Witsit had moved on from Indianapolis in the meantime to Kansas City, where he now has become the general manager of the Kansas City Kings. So I engaged Bob that summer, and I remember getting a letter from him, uh, like, we want you to come do the Kansas City Kings. And this is midway through training camp. I had just gotten married. My wife knew what she was in for because of the travel. She, we were engaged two years prior, so she knew about the travel with the hockey and then the, the college basketball and so forth. She knew what the sacrifices were going to be. But God bless her, she sacrificed a pretty good career as a nurse, and she loved that at Indiana University to move with me to Kansas City. And that's where I got my start with the Kansas City Kings in the NBA when I was 25 years old. So that's how I got on the, the fast track to the NBA. Uh, yeah, a lot know, of it dumb luck, but a lot of it was, <laughs> you know, realizing you're in the right place at the right time, putting the work out there and and just having confidence that you could do the job. Yeah, you know, one of the things that strikes me as a sports fan, and you, you've rattled off some of these names, people that were influential to you, but that industry seems like there's guys that have been doing it forever and they don't yeah. necessarily leave at a young age. I mean, they do it as long no. as they possibly can. So it's, it's kind of why I acted surprised that you had big jobs at such a young age. Cause these jobs don't seem like they come up very often. Am I right no, about they that? They don't. They absolutely don't. They're like a needle in a haystack. Uh, case in point, uh, Al McCoy, who's been the 52 years now, the radio voice of the Phoenix Suns, had all the intention of quitting at the age of, I think, 83 or four, two years ago. But with all the ownership issues that they had there with Robert Sarver and all the bad publicity they were getting, they decided internally that the one ray of sunshine was our longtime play-by-play guy, Al McCoy. So they asked Al not to retire. They said, you can do the home games. We'll provide a car and a body man for you to help you get up and down to the broadcast location if you'll just do the home games. Al said, well, sure, you know, I'm not doing anything else. So he's been doing that for the last two years. So it's 52 years going on. You know, a lot of it depends, I think, on on management, on how long you've been in that market, certainly. And uh, physically, how do you feel about getting on another airplane and going to another hotel in the middle of February in Cleveland, Ohio? Yeah. You know? So is there kind of, I mean, since so many of these guys have longevity, as once you're in, is it somewhat like you're in a fraternity of, you're in this club? And I say fraternity because there's probably no women, particularly in these days, that was doing it. Just a bunch of men that have been doing it forever. Did you feel yeah. like, okay, now I've got this gig and I'm part of this club? Absolutely. 
And more and more, we are we're seeing minorities in play-by-play, not the analyst role, but play-by-play role, which is great. And we have two women now that are full-time play-by-play announcers on the television side in the NBA. So that universe is expanding and people are cognizant of the need for minorities and other voices to be in that role as play-by-play people. But to your point about a fraternity, absolutely. Uh, When I signed on, it, it, it was terrific. The reception you get from other announcers. And of course, the longer you're in there, the longer you get to know these other fellows. But I remember the first game that I did in Kansas City, doing the broadcast, and our first game was against the Los Angeles Lakers. They would then that year become the the national champions, the world champions, with Magic, Kareem, Coop, Byron Scott, James Worthy, that group, and Chick Hearn doing the play-by-play. And I remember meeting Chick, making a point to go down there and introduce myself to the great Chick Hearn of the Los Angeles Lakers, because my style and the way I listened to games and what I really enjoyed was I really enjoyed a Chick Hearn broadcast because uh, he had all the elements that I wanted to involve in my broadcast. And I mean, he was, he had all the information up to date, great anecdotes, terrific play by play. And he had a personality and was funny in a, a kind of a dry, sarcastic way. I really loved his broadcast and he had command of the broadcast. And then to meet him was fantastic because he couldn't have been any more down to earth. And he just told me his whole story, you know, because I didn't know his whole story. But he he was gracious enough, you know, here, kid, have a seat, called me kid, which I thought was terrific. And so I had a relationship with Chick through those all those years where I could sidle up to Chick, get the latest on the Los Angeles Lakers. We could exchange stories. He was a terrific listener. He wanted to soak up knowledge from you about your team, as well as give knowledge and, and information that, as best you can. So. Yeah, the the fraternity idea that really struck me when the first game NBA game I did when uh, the Kings played the Los Angeles Lakers and that I made uh, an association with the great Chick Hearn. Hey, so at what point? I mean, you're, okay, you're doing this; it's obviously going well. You've got a career going, but honestly, when I say this, I've never heard anyone that has the style and the approach that you do, and the the way that you inject feels like a super genuine enthusiasm. And fun, I guess, for lack of a better word, into the games that makes it super infectious. I mean, was this something that always came naturally to you or is this something you cultivated over time? The the style that you ended up becoming really well known for. Well, I just loved once I did a game and got over the fear of being on the microphone and the enormity of the situation or what you make it to be bigger than it is then it's such a relief and there's a joy in it, I think, <laughs> to know that, you know, I can I can get on the air tonight. I can get through a two and a half hour broadcast. I can make this come alive. This can be a, a, a not a good game, but I want people to know I don't feel like I'm at work right now. I feel like I'm having some joy, having some fun, because that's why. Look, that's why people plug into sports is to have some joy in their day, to get away, to be transported. So I, you know, I'm going to play along. I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm in it to have fun. Rolls that leather in the palm, speeds over to Cage, covered by Ellis. Turns the corner, stops. In midair, gives off to Kemp. He juggles it, got it, hooks it up, missed it. Rebound, Cage, battling with Ellis. Saved in, bounced by Peyton. Right to Kemp, beneath the lid, stutter step. In he comes, got it back, hooks it up, no. Rebound, Pendle up, no. Blocked by Williams, grabbed by Kemp. In the late following jumper, blocked by Williams. Outside of McMillan. Cross court to Gary for the three. 
Let's go home. Let's go home. Oh, Harkless says good night, Los Angeles. High left hand dribble goes up and under with the right hand off the back. Magnificent play. Raining it in from Mars. Scrapes the sky with the right hand. The captain with a jam. Gary and Trent to Devlin. To Gary. Oh, oh the tomahawk oh, there from the right oh, hand. Oh, oh. Major feeds outside to Kemp. High on the left side. Spot to to the heavens, baby! Kemp keeps the ball alive. Hooked away by Axe. Full run across midcourt. Dribbles by Johnson to the gun. A thundering overhead slam! What a play! Holy cow! Tied at 115. Crowd rising to the feet. George will defend Lillard. Spread floor. Lillard with 47 tonight. Working it down to 2-1. to one. A deep three! Oh! Blazers win the series! A walk-off three from Lillard! To the win! One of the things that strikes me is when I'm listening to you, that that joy comes through, but it's not in a way that's performative and trying to elevate yourself. It's more about how you're trying to bring to life the players, which kind of brings me to when you're in Seattle again, I just remember so clearly these isms, I suppose. You had like nicknames and you had like catchphrases for things that happened. I mean, if you... If you had one description of Sean Kemp with a tomahawk dunk, you had a zillion of them. I mean, then, and all these guys had like nicknames, like, you know, it's Michael Cage. It's, oh, it's Big Money Daddy. And like, like, how did you come up with this stuff? I mean, were you consciously like, oh, I got to come up with a nickname for this guy? Well, no, a lot of them are generated by the players themselves. I mean, Gary essentially, or his cousin, gave him the name The Glove. The the Big Paper Daddy, Ricky Pierce was Big Paper Daddy (laughs) because- (laughs) George Carl would sometimes give the guys an option before practice. You bear, everybody gets one shot. You bury a shot from half court, practice is over. You know, go get your treatment with Frank Furtado, our trainer. Go lift some weights, but you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna work on the floor. It was rare, but sometimes you'd get those. So George issued the challenge, and Pierce steps up and knocks down a jump shot from half court. I mean, this dude was so strong. He was just a terrific shooter. But Ricky from half court buries a jump shot. Boom, knocks it down. I'm sitting courtside, and as they run off the floor, Dana Barrows catches my eye and shakes his head and he goes, big paper daddy. <laughs> as he goes running off. So I thought, big paper daddy, I like it. Uh, and Rick, I never asked Ricky for permission, but Ricky never let me know he didn't like it. And believe me, Ricky would let you know if he didn't like something. Vincent Askew, uh, so reading his biography and then talking to, to Vincent, his, his mother wanted him to play the fiddle uh, growing up in Memphis. So he, he grew up playing the violin. I thought, man, that's for a guy like Vincent Askew, because Vincent was our, he was our muscle. Uh, he was our goon, so to speak. He was a guy that would physically get all over you from a defensive standpoint. Right. This man, Vincent Askew, grew up playing the violin. I'll just call him the fiddler. So the fiddler <laughs> stuck. And he liked that. It was always something with these guys. Um, uh, Reggie Williams, for example, a terrific rebounder. He could track down any rebound anywhere. So I called him the collector because he would collect just about anything that was out on the floor. And he liked that as well. So I think as long as the the nickname is apt and it's not controversial or doesn't demean the player, then I think you're, you're, you're pretty good with it. Big Smooth, uh, Sam Perkins was yeah, known as Big, Big Smooth. smooth in Los, he was known as Big Smooth in Los Angeles, uh, but it, it wasn't a nickname that was used a lot. And so 
grabbed onto that one too. Big Smooth. And everybody called him Big Big Smooth. <laughs> S-M-O-V. Big Smooth. That's right. So what about Rain Man? So the Sean Kemp one, again, when if you go, if anyone goes yeah. to, if they want to about Kevin Collaborate, you go on YouTube, you type your name in, you're going to see a lot of Sean Kemp highlights. The oh, Rain Man. So tell me about that. I owe a lot. To, I owe a lot to Sean Kemp. I mean, can you imagine a guy at that size can do what he can do, lest we forget, you know, what a dynamo this guy was. So the the opportunity to describe his activity on the floor was right up my alley. I thought I had the perfect style to describe what he did. Because you, if you don't have energy and you don't have power in your broadcast to match that, it's just going to be off. So it had that that call always had to be jumping right through the TV and grabbing you. Did you just see what the Rain Man did? But the Rain Man story, we're playing the Golden State Warriors in an early, in a first round series in 91, maybe. And I walk into the old Coliseum and they didn't have all the marketing gizmos and the big kiosks and the big marketing areas where they're selling merchandise, except for one little kiosk there where they were selling some hats, selling some T-shirts and selling Costacos Brothers posters, fabulous posters of the early 90s. I've got a garage full of them because uh, the kid, my all my kids collected them. But they have Sean hanging in the air next to the, the Space Needle dunking a basketball and the rain man, you know, splashed across that. And I thought that is brilliant. I wish I had thought of that. I'll, I'm going to incorporate that into the broadcast. I, my thought was, as long as you give them credit, because Stockos Brothers credit, you could probably use it. So I began to use it and people went nuts. They absolutely loved it. You know, oh, the rain man has struck, shrunk, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. It was just, it was just, it was large. <laughs> and so that's how the rain man was stamped on, on our broadcast. And then, Obviously, Sean adopted the, the nickname and, and he loved it. But Sean, to this day, will credit it to me. And I always have to correct, you know, anytime somebody says, you know, hey, Sean's telling you, know, hey, no, it was the Costacos brothers. They're brilliance. They did a, a, an unbelievable job uh, to, to brand that. And they did campus service for sure. So, you know, I'm thinking about those times in Seattle. And so you you got to Seattle, what, you were there 87 to 08. Is that right? Correct. A long time. And just thinking about how that time really shaped what you became as an announcer, too. I mean, did it because you had a team that that was good and was young, had that kind of personality. Did that allow you to to come across that way live on the air? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think fans, you know, they, they knew I was a fan first and foremost. I didn't say we are us. I'm not a player. I'm not a coach, not part of the team, but could be seen as part of the team. There was that perception, I guess, that, you know, he's our guy. I mean, listen to him. You can just hear it. If you can hear it in the tone of voice, to me, that is the badge of honor. Uh, It's not what you say necessarily, but it's the tone of voice. If people listen and they can tell whether or not the Blazers are in the lead or not, or the Sonics are in the lead or not, based on the tone of your voice, you've done a, a really nice job. But those were terrific teams, like you said there was a five or six year period where they're winning an average of 55 games. Right. So um, it, it was a great time. It did kind of mold me to that degree because it was high energy. It was high energy basketball. And I had to match that energy. Did you get the impression of that time? The team was doing well. I mean, you were really in your groove. Did you get this impression that you were starting to develop a national reputation as like 
perhaps a leader amongst your peers as someone that's doing something really engaging and entertaining? Yeah, I mean, there were people that reached out. You know, I got a chance to do some Turner games and filled in and, and did some NBA TV games. And, you know, ESPN gave me a couple opportunities to do some games and still continue to get those opportunities to work for ESPN in that eight years between when the Sonics left and uh, by the time I got the uh, the Blazer broadcast uh, in 2016, I was doing close to 70 events and all but four or five were in Seattle. So I was doing uh, Pac-12 football and basketball, doing ESPN TV, ESPN radio. I did some stuff that I wouldn't have ordinarily done had I stayed with the Sonics or stayed with the Sonics when they became the Thunder in Oklahoma City, which was something I just simply was not going to do. So that that period of freelance for eight years actually was pretty rewarding. Uh, made good living and got an opportunity to meet a lot of people and done a lot of different events. That was good. All right. Well, I mean, you brought it up, but I was probably going to go there anyway. But <laughs> it's a super painful chapter in my life being part of that Sonic ownership group and then being part of the group that sold it to the Oklahoma City Thunder. And if you want to bring up a hot topic in Seattle to anyone that's listening oh. into this, man, it's still to this day, and you know it, it is a raw and an emotional subject. I, I just want to explain real quickly how that all went down from my point of view. So Howard Schultz was the main owner, but there was like 50-something of us minority owners. And he had asked me to be a part of this, and I was super flattered. I didn't have a ton of money I could put in, but he said, doesn't matter. I just want you to be part of it. That's great. And so it's all fine when things are going along fine. The team was successful and things were fun. We had great players, but it became clear over time that it was impossible for the team to make money, kind of given the structure of the arena deal, the fact that you know player salaries were really starting to grow then, and the economics of it looked really tough. And so Howard finally goes, because I, you know, I don't know how we're ever going to be able to make money at this thing the way it's going. And so he started talking to us like, we've got to, we got to do something about it. And so this guy from Oklahoma City, uh, Clay Bennett, you know, he shows up and Howard goes, God, you know, he's, he really wants to buy the team and I believe him. He wants to keep it here and it's going to be great. And I, maybe he'll be able to get an arena deal with the city. We can't do it, but we got to get out. And so it eventually comes to a vote. And he ended up choosing me amongst nine people that were on the board of directors. And we all had kind of an equal vote. And so Howard goes, okay, they're offering us this amount of money. I vote yes. Pete Nordstrom, what do you vote? And and I'm like the youngest guy at this point on this group. And I go, I vote no. And it was just like dead silence on this call. And my, I said, hey, look, at, I don't have a remedy for what the issue is, but I've got to believe there is one over time. And if we sell this thing, I believe Wally, I think they're going to move it and it is going to be bad. Bad news for all of us, the city. We can't do it. We can't sell it to these guys. And then a couple other guys vote no. And then it's like, oh, my God, here we go. And then the other guys vote. It ends up being five to four. Yes. And oh. Yeah, I don't know if you knew that, but it was, I mean, you know, it was a close vote. And then Howard goes, okay, well, that's it. It's five to four. It's yes. And I'm like, oh, my God. 
But anyway, that all came down and then it was really painful. And so I'm, I'm curious from mm-hmm. your end how you how you took that, because it obviously it affected your life in a profound way. I mean, to your point, you're not moving to Oklahoma City and, you know, yeah. here we are. So tell me about your recollection of that time and what happened there when the Sonics got sold. Well, I was one of those guys that uh, when Bennett bought the team, thought there's no way they're going to move. The NBA will allow this to happen. Yeah. But I just didn't see anybody out there on the political landscape that was willing to step up or in the business community with the kind of money that, you know, we were talking about. Right. You know, I had someone been around with deep pockets with the kind of you know ESP that apparently you guys, some of you guys had that, you know, once you lose it, you, you're, you're not getting it back. No. And there's got to be a better way. And this has got to work itself out. There's a finite number of these babies you're after all, in my mind, you're as an owner or governor of a team, you're the stewards of the team. You're the stewards of a legacy for the city. Right. More more than anything else. And that should be uh, the charter, I think, of, of ownership. But um, so, I, you know, anyway, I, I never thought it was going to happen. And then sure enough, what was it, the second week in July in 2008, city comes out and there stands Greg Nichols and says, essentially, you know, we've. We've agreed to to sell 41 years of history for $40 million and off they go. Yeah. And just like that, they're gone. And it was just, it was, it was shocking. And I had no idea how it would, you know, change our course. I just knew that I had already told Bennett that, that year and Bennett to his credit was pretty forthright with his employees when talking about what was going down that last year. And he was actually auditioning people for jobs and the offer was made, you know, to, to bring me along to Oklahoma city for pretty good money. And I told him, I said, there's just, there's no way that's going to work out. We've got four kids in four different schools. Three of my kids have been born here. As my wife put it, if we move to Oklahoma city, we, meaning she and the kids will live in Oklahoma city, not you. <laughs> I'm on the road all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so, and there were no, no direct flights from Seattle to Oklahoma city. So it was just kind of stacked up. Plus we had been to Oklahoma city a couple of years. Remember when the Hornets were displaced by Katrina. So we knew what Oklahoma city was. Right. And it's not Seattle uh, and it never will be. <laughs> and, and so I'd done 21 years and I thought, you know, I, that's 21 more years than I ever thought I'd get to do NBA games and I will figure something else out and we'll be okay. You know, so when it all went down, you know, I grieved for about a month or so and, you know, I was upset. And then I realized, you know what? Fall's coming. That means college basketball, football, the Sounders are coming. There's a rumor of the Sounders. Cairo may be doing a talk show. So I got, I got into conversation with everybody. Pac-12 hired me. ESPN brought me on to do 20 games on TV. The Sounders hired me for some crazy reason. And I ended up doing a talk show on Cairo. So I have more work than I could possibly take on, Pete. It, uh, you know, things have a way of turning out. Well, I feel like I need to apologize to you. I'm sorry I was part of, I mean, honestly, it's embarrassing to me. I feel terrible about it. And I apologize. I mean, it's, it's just, I feel like, you know, luckily, most people don't connect me with that because it's all about Howard. He had to take all the bullets for that. I I feel bad for Howard because he's not a bad guy. But, you know, it's it was not a good decision, man. So now here we are 
Okay, when we get a, a team back, and I think you may know, you know, I'm attached to Chris Hansen and and Balmer was part of that group and, you know, trying to get it. And, you know, we're still keeping the dream alive. We've got now, I think it's 13 acres there in Soto that we own. We are like, you know, stadium ready. And one way or the other, I guess just where I'm coming from is I just love to see the city get a team again. It would be, I miss yes. it personally and I... This city should have a team. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a great basketball town. I couldn't agree more. You talk about 41 years of history and the legacy of the championship and two championship finals and all the great names of the past, you know, Lenny and Jack and Freddie and DJ and Sean and Gary and Detlef Shrimp and Big Smooth and Ray Allen and, you know, all those guys. Uh, Nick Collison, Slick Watts that still make – a home in Seattle. Yeah. You know, are still contributing to the fabric of Seattle. That's what, that's where, you know, Nick Lakata got it wrong years ago. And he talked about this just didn't have any social impact on the community. Well, he was wrong. He later admitted that it does have an enormous impact that can be felt in the community. And when you take that out, I think you really miss something. So from my standpoint, and I think from the league standpoint, Adam Silver has said so much, you know, Seattle definitely is a deserving market for for the NBA. And when it when it arrives here, and I've been saying since 2008, Pete, when people ask me, you know, when are the Sonics coming back? I've been very consistent. And I, my answer has been sometime in the next three years. <laughs> I've been saying that since 2008. So at some point. <laughs> you sound like me. I feel like I've said that, too. Like, yes, yeah, so, you know, my, my brother, myself <laughs> yeah. and Wally and Chris, you know, were part of this group. You know, Balmer <laughs> was part of our group. But when he went and bought the Clippers, so he's, yeah. he's not anymore. But these teams are so expensive. The idea that you can just cobble together some people and buy a team, those those yeah, days are right. long since gone. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so, Kevin, I'm curious, you know, you've you've had all these years and all the success and and done a lot of different things. To your point, even basketball and football and hockey and soccer and I mean, your your voice is even on a PlayStation game. Am I right about that? The NBA PlayStation yeah, game? somewhere out there. I did one for <laughs> Microsoft and then did one for uh, Sony, yeah. So, I mean, of all these moments and experiences you have, do any stories really kind of jump out to you as just like unbelievable and kind of amazing stories? I, I'm going to give you a chance to give me a great story here. Well, I, I go back to Chick Hearn and that first year I'm doing the broadcast for the Kansas City Kings. So I'm 25 years old. We are playing the Lakers at the fabulous forum in Los Angeles. And it's everything that it is portrayed to be on HBO, by the way. <laughs> yeah. The Los Angeles Lakers. Showtime Lakers. The night before the Kings are to play the Lakers, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar breaks Wilt Chamberlain's scoring record. The next night, they're playing the Kansas City Kings. They return home to Los Angeles. And there's speculation in the L.A. Times that Wilt will not be attending because there apparently is a rift between the big men. Don't know if Kareem or with Wilt, Wilt is going to show because they're going to have a ceremony for Kareem that night. I get to the arena and I'm doing a radio game. We're not televising, doing a radio game. And I check in with Chick as I always did. I sit down next to Chick. He says, now, you know, we're going to have a ceremony. We're going to have a little stoppage of time. We could go long. And I'm thinking with Chick involved, you're definitely going long. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he says, I'll be the master of ceremonies. Uh, we don't know if Will's going to show or not, but we're going to introduce a lot of people out there. He says, what are you going to what are you going to do for to fill time? <laughs> he was concerned about me, <laughs> Kansas City Radio. What are you going to what are you going to do? To, and I said, well, yeah. So he says, here's what you do. He says, you can, you're welcome to take the live feed if you want. 
I said, that's a brilliant idea. I'd love to do that. So he says, well, I'll get my engineer and we'll get you patched in. So we were up there in rows up at the top of the forum. Chick's doing TV that night. So he's got enough to do. And he also did a pregame radio show. So he's let a lot of stuff go on. He's taking care of me. And I'm two rows back and I'm doing radio by myself. He's got an engineer by the name of Monty. Monty has one arm. He's a one-armed engineer. Monty sets up cables from his Los Angeles Lakers position and runs them through two other positions, two other rows up into the aisle and plugs it into my machine. So I'm taking the feed, taking the whole ceremony. Chick's down there. He's orchestrating. Here comes Dr. Bus. Here's Magic. Here's Coop. Here's you know, all these stars, uh, Byron Scott, and James Worthy, all these guys. As the Lakers come out and they do a presentation for Kareem. And then you hear the crowds just start to murmur. And then they just break into just wild, crazy applause. Everybody standing as this giant of a man comes out of the tunnel dressed in black silk tank top, black silk pajama pants and black sandals. And it's Wilt. (laughs) Wilt shows up for the ceremony, comes out. Greets Kareem, you know, they embrace and just it was up for grabs in the building. So it was and I had all that on live radio back to Kansas City for all 15 of my listeners that night. (laughs) (laughs) But it was but it it was just it was fun to be there. And I've got in fact, I was digging through some old stuff. I've got the L.A. Times uh, the next morning and their recounting of that whole story. And it's just uh, it it was it was just a great moment. It really was as a young announcer to have that happen. It was it was fabulous. Hey, look, Kevin, you're you're so nice to do this, and you know I, I'm just so appreciative, and I'm I'm a big fan, and I, I gotta admit, I was I was a little nervous before this because it's hard to interview a guy <laughs> that interviews people for a living. So, the last thing I'm going to ask you is, do you have any interviewing tips for me on how I could be better at doing podcasts? Well, I think you've done a nice job of listening. I think that's a you've covered a you've listened. Uh, Follow up questions, I think, are uh, pretty essential too. You've you've done that. I think you, you did a nice job to keep me loose and, and keep me energized. All right. Well, that's high, high praise. I appreciate it. You're the best. Thanks so much for being on the Nordy Pod. And I, I hope I run into you down the road here. Yeah, let's do it. Hopefully at an NBA game. You got it. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey. And we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast or follow us on our Instagram page at the Nordy Pod to stay up to date on new episodes, announcements, and more. We'd also really like to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can even give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you may just get a chance to talk to me personally on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy. Drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Podcast.